0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Poem Peeps. We're really excited for today's case episode. Want to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram that every Tuesday, Poem Peeps Tuesday, we'll be releasing new content, either a podcast or some high-yield imaging for your learning. So follow us, go to poempeeps.com and see all the content that we're offering. Today, we're really excited to welcome back Natalie West, She's an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and oversees clinical operations of the Johns Hopkins Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center. She's now a Poem Peeps veteran, having joined us for our first episode, and we're really excited to have her back. Natalie, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me back, you guys. I really enjoyed all the episodes and the radiology round. You guys are doing a great job.
2: Hey, Natalie, it's Christina, and it's so great to have you back today. And just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views that we are expressing today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case that the three of us will be talking about today is HIPAA compliant, and some details may have changed to protect the privacy of our patient. All right, Furfanat, so let's get going with our case. So we have a 50-year-old woman who's a never smoker with a past medical history of recurrent pancreatitis presenting to pulmonary clinic for further evaluation of a chronic cough. Upon further questioning, she reveals that her cough has been present for the last three years, it does not wake her up from sleep, it is not associated with food intake, and she's now saying that it occurs almost daily. In the last few months, she describes her cough as being productive of small amounts of yellow to green sputum without any associated hemoptysis. And she also reports that she has a history of postnasal drip for which she takes intranasal fluticasone or Flonase and has a history of chronic sinus infections, but denies any history of sinus surgeries. She has no significant family history of pulmonary disease. She denies any significant occupational exposures. And currently she lives in a suburb setting in a home and does not have any pets currently.
0: It's an awesome summary so far, Monty. And I feel like I have a good sense of why she's here in the clinic. You know, I think it's always important to think about the common things. So, uh, any patient coming in with chronic cough, you know, I know you guys know, but for our listeners, you know, our three most common causes of chronic cough are cough variant asthma, uh, GERD or acid reflux disease, or upper airway cough syndrome or post nasal drip, you know, where they have irritation coming from, post nasal drip going down into the upper airway. This patient, obviously those things we're going to consider because she has chronic cough and those are the three most common etiologies, but there's a few unusual features that will require us to delve into it a little bit more. I think the two things that stand out to me is the chronic sinus infections with prior sinus surgeries definitely make me worry about an upper airway cause of this and maybe more than just a simple post-nasal drip. And the second thing is that this history of recurrent pancreatitis in a 50-year-old woman will have to get more history. There may be a good cause for that, but certainly something for us to investigate further. It looks like as a part of her workup, she had some spirometry before. So as we discussed before, when we interpret spirometry, we start by looking, uh, and we're talking about basic spirometry here. So we're just doing the flow volume loop, FVC, FEV1, FEV1 over FVC, and some basic measures, no lung volumes or diffusion uh, in this case. And when we're interpreting spirometry like that, first we look at the FEV1 over FVC to see if there's any obstruction And going back to our case episode on ABPA, we know that when we do that, we look to see if the patient's value is less than the lower limit of normal. In this case, we see that the FEV1 over FVC was 63%. The lower limit of normal was 69% for her uh, age, height, and the other factors that are weighed in. So she has an obstruction that is present. After that, we look at the FEV1 and the FVC to see if there are reductions there. If she has a reduction in her FEV1, it's 1.95 liters, and the lower limit of normal is 2.17, although her FVC is normal. And then finally, she had post-bronchodilator spirometry, and we talk about a significant change being an increase in FEVC or FEV1 of 200 milliliters or 12%, and she does not have a uh, a significant response to bronchodilators. So overall, looks like she has some mild obstruction on her spirometry.
2: That was great. Thanks so much, Verf. And in addition to her spirometry, she was also recently evaluated at her local urgent care and given a course of azithromycin for concern for bronchitis. And during that evaluation, she had a chest x-ray done. She brought the disc for us to view, and we'll definitely put this up on Twitter for everyone following along to see. So viewing the image per my read, this looks like a good film. I would say that she has hyperinflation. So normally you want to see 8 to 10 posterior ribs, and I'm actually seeing 11 in her. So I would classify this as hyperinflation, but without flattening of the diaphragm. And she also has some faint bilateral interstitial markings. Natalie, I'm not sure if you remember this teaching or not, but in one of our Friday radiology conferences several years ago, I remember Dr. Peter Terry, who's one of our amazing senior faculty, going over the differential for increased lung volumes with interstitial markings. And the four broad categories that I remember him saying include sarcoidosis, cystic fibrosis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and lymphangiomyomatosis or LAM. So hopefully y'all can all remember and keep those differentials um, if you see increased lung volumes with interstitial markings. Um, But moving along to her physical exam, she appeared stated age, she was able to speak comfortably on room air throughout the entire interview, she did have some mild expiratory wheezing primarily in her right posterior lung field, and important pertinent negatives to mention, she had no evidence of clubbing, she did not have an elevated JVP, no peripheral edema, no rashes or joint abnormalities either.
0: That is such a good pearl that you just shared, Monty, the differential for increased lung volumes with prominent interstitial markings on x-ray and without evidence of diaphragm flattening or or signs of air trapping. I'm definitely going to remember that one. So Natalie, I know we've provided a lot of information so far, but I'm curious how you would frame this case and how you're thinking about this patient.
1: Sure. And um, Monty, before I, I frame the case, I'd like to say definitely um, any sort of pearls given to us by Dr. Peter Terry is wonderful for our audience who doesn't know who Dr. Terry is. He is one of the most beloved pulmonologists at Hopkins he has been with us for decades and has mentored many people and he knows all. So that's a great pearl from him. So we have a middle-aged woman with past medical history of postnasal drip, recurrent sinus infections, recurrent pancreatitis, who's now presenting with increased cough and sputum production. And um, evaluation so far shows mild obstruction on PFTs as well, as well as hyperinflation and mild interstitial markings.
0: That's great. I think that's a perfect one-liner for us. And I'm curious what additional testing you would do at this time.
1: So I think at this, this time, I think it's more it's really important to do several things. One thing would be a CT scan to look for parenchymal abnormalities, and given her productive cough, I would also want a sputum sample and see what bacteria she may or may not be growing. And I know we're on Palm Peeps today and how much we all love the lungs, but do we have any additional information on her recurrent pancreatitis?
2: So that's a fair question to ask Natalie. Um, and even though the pancreas is below the diaphragm, it's important um, to talk about in this case. And upon further questioning of the patient, she does not have a history of gallstones and has infrequent alcohol intake. So the two most common reasons for pancreatitis don't seem to be at play here.
0: She did uh, get a chest CT like you were asking for, Natalie. And upon review of her chest CT, which you can view online and on our Twitter post, she has some mild bronchiectasis bilaterally and some tree and blood nodules throughout her parenchyma. As we discussed in our prior episodes, it is important to look at the distribution of bronchiectasis so you can think of the several large categories that are associated with this finding. The main categories for etiology are one, post-infectious or inflammatory conditions, two, congenital conditions that lead to recurrent infections such as cystic fibrosis or primary ciliary dyskinesia. Three, immunodeficiency, this can be primary or secondary due to medications or another illness. Four, chronic aspiration, and five, rheumatologic conditions, as well as a few other rare conditions such as IBD. And the common thing uniting all of these is they lead to either recurrent infections or unregulated inflammation in the lungs, which then causes the airways to dilate and scar over time.
2: Thanks so much, Furf. and I think it's really important, as you mentioned, to kind of think of the five broad categories, as you said, when when you're thinking about differentials with bronchiectasis. Uh, I want to go ahead and move over, though, to her sputum sample. You know, interestingly, she's growing uh, Pseudomonas. She also has MSSA, or methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, as well as aspergillus. Natalie, what are you thinking about these findings for her? So thanks, Mati. So those really pop
1: out to me because these are certainly not common pathogens that are identified in the general population and really kind of piques my interest that there's something really going on here. And the fact that she has bronchiectasis um, really kind of fits with a lot of those pathogens that have been identified in her sputum. So bronchiectasis has this perpetuating cycle of inflammation and recurrent infections, which then cause damage and then because you have damage, you can't clear a lot of the sputum and the bacteria. So the inflammatory cycle and the infectious cycle just keeps going, causing more uh, damage, which leads to the permanent airway dilation of bronchiectasis. And one thing that we haven't checked on her, but given that she does have bronchiectasis and some tree and bud findings is um, an AFB culture, and particularly looking for non-tuberculous mycobacteria. So in terms of non-tuberculous mycobacteria, sometimes it's, it's, is it the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken? So sometimes bronchiectasis can set up shop for non-tuberculous mycobacteria to, to be there and to cause further damage. However, sometimes it's the NTM that is actually leading to bronchiectasis. And two of the most common pathogens of the non-tuberculous mycobacteria are MAC and also mycobacterium abscessus.
0: I think for going forward, I'm not even going to say chicken and egg anymore. I'm just going to say NTM bronchiectasis. And, you know, Clearly, that's the, the better analogy.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much, Nat. That was really helpful um, to hear. And I want to frame our case so far with the additional data that we now have. So I would say that we have a middle-aged woman with a history of a chronic productive cough uh, who has evidence of mild obstruction on spirometry, as well as bilateral bronchiectasis on chest imaging with polymicrobial pathogens on sputum culture. Um, although her bronchiectasis is pretty mild, um, it is bilateral, and one of the first things I do when I see bronchiectasis on imaging is to identify the distribution, um, as you previously mentioned, FERF. So in her, she, uh, her right upper lobe and anterior aspects of her posterior lobes are involved and I know we reviewed this in our ABPA case, but I think important to, to consider again um, is the location. And Natalie, this is where Furf and I, one of our prior episodes, remembered um, the lecture that you gave us on the location of bronchiectasis and something that has stuck with us uh, until now. So as far as location goes, when I think of upper lobes, I really think of cystic fibrosis as well as sarcoidosis right middle lobe, I know, can be thought of, as Natalie mentioned, with the non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. And lower lobes, I think, more of aspiration, any prior um, radiation therapy, HIV, anti-inflammatory conditions, as well as immunodeficiency, specifically hypogamma globulinemia. Now, anything else to add for that?
1: Yeah, I th- I'm so glad that you guys remembered my lecture from a couple years ago. Um, I would add uh, ABPA also tends to affect the middle lobes. And then I can't remember if you said it, but primary ciliary dyskinesia, alpha 1 antitrypsin, both can affect the lower lobes.
0: That's fantastic. That's a great tip. I think the alpha 1 antitrypsin that you mentioned is really important. We'll do another case about that exact condition, but I think it's something we probably chronically under test for in both cases of bronchiectasis and obstructive pulmonary disease because it's something that we can treat if we find it.
2: That's so great, Matt. No, I didn't say that. So definitely appreciate you adding that in for us. Um, And I think at this point with the patient, we have a great kind of frame of what we're thinking um, about her. But, you know, the thing now is like, why does she have this bronchiectasis and what treatments can we provide her? So Dave, how do you usually think of um, working up bronchiectasis in your patients?
0: Yeah. So I think we talked about the broad differentials that we have in the different categories and the distributions. And I go through all of that. So I have some inclination of what I'm looking for. At the same time, I will say, I try not to take a total shotgun approach to everything in medicine, but in this type of case, I want to know what the underlying cause is. So when I, even with the distribution, I may focus my testing, but I mostly get a set of testing on everybody to see if there's anything I can identify. So the things I look for, I look for uh, evidence of immunodeficiency. I'll test for HIV or other associated conditions. I'll do immunoglobulin levels because hypogammaglobulinemia is a common cause of an immunodeficiency that leads to bronchiectasis. I do an autoimmune screening. I'll take an ANA, rheumatoid factor, CCP. Depending on some other symptoms, I may think about an ANCA. In this case, if they have a sinus symptoms, uh, which she does, I would take an ANCA level as well. And then I think about the congenital conditions we've mentioned, such as cystic fibrosis, I'll definitely do a sweat chloride test. And I think about the sputum culture that we already have to look for causative conditions that could be driving this, like MAI. Natalie, anything additional to that workup that you send as well?
1: Yeah. So um, I think one thing I'll note for the sweat chloride, as you both know, cystic fibrosis is my main area of practice, is that the sweat chloride test really needs to be done in a CF accredited center. So I've I've definitely had some um, inaccurate sweat tests that are just done at labs that don't frequently do them, and so making sure they're done at a at, at a center that is CF accredited, so that you get an accurate one. I I had a, a patient who had a um, normal sweat test, and then when it was done um, at a CF accredited center, it was very abnormal. And we diagnosed her with CF um, thereafter based on additional tests. So I think just making sure it's done um, in that, in that instance. And then also I think some of these tests really can take a while. So while the evaluation is out, just thinking about going ahead and um, treating for her, her sputum. So thinking about airway clearance techniques to start teaching her, et cetera.
2: You guys so many tips in today's episode. And I agree with um, what you've said for Finnat, and I think we have discussed a great approach to bronchiectasis in the majority of patients. And I think one thing worth noting at this time is that for the majority of the evaluation, you know, you can tell your patients they're gonna go to the lab, they're gonna get um, some blood drawn, and that blood will be sent off for a specific test. But I think one thing that many may not be familiar with is a sweat test. And I wasn't familiar with this until fellowship, but as a general review, basically this test measures the amount of chloride in the sweat, and I think of this as an overall screening test. You know, one important thing to tell your patients is that there are no needles involved in this test, and I usually think of it and describe it as happening in two steps. So in the first step of the test, a colorless and odorless chemical called pilocarpine. And a little electrical stimulation is applied to a small area of an arm or a leg to basically encourage the sweat glands to produce sweat. You know, sometimes patients may say that they can cause tingling in the area or they may feel warm, um, but this usually lasts for less than five minutes. And for the second part of the test, the sweat is then collected on a piece of filter paper or gauze or sometimes even a plastic coil. This step, I tell the patients, is the longer part, and this can last up to 30 minutes. Once the sweat is collected, um, it's then sent to a hospital laboratory. And as um, Natalie mentioned earlier, um, doing it in a cf specific center is really important to assess, and they can measure um, how much chloride is in the sweat.
1: That's great, Monty. And, and, and actually, the CF Foundation will have a patient handout that you could print to give to your patient that kind of explains it in more detail as well with pictures associated with it. So looking at her case, I see that her immunoglobulin levels are normal. She's HIV negative, and a brief autoimmune workup and rheumatoid factor, as Dave suggested, are also negative. However, her sweat chloride resulted at 48, and that's classified as indeterminate. And I find this really interesting. So to review sweat chloride levels, less than 30 is considered normal. 31 to 60 is considered indeterminate. And then greater than 60 is considered positive, And that CF is likely.
0: Okay. I'm going to need a little help on this one. This is the non-CF doc in the group. So some tests, I feel like when they're indeterminate, it just means it's a bad test. Sometimes it means it, you can't tell if it's absent or there. So what do we do with an indeterminate sweat chloride test? What does it mean for our patient?
1: Right. So I think taken in the, in the correct clinical context, it's still actually really helpful. So it's actually not uncommon for those with CF who end up being diagnosed with CF who have a milder phenotype to actually have a normal or even indeterminate sweat chloride. So in fact, 10% of people with CF who are diagnosed in adulthood do have normal sweat chlorides. And these tend to be the people that uh, might be diagnosed in their 40s and 50s who have had mild symptoms their whole life and were just missed. I suspect, though, as time goes on, this will be less and less because now all 50 states have newborn screening for CF. So as far as the next steps, I would recommend genetic testing. And so one caveat, one tip I'll give you is to really be careful. There has to be specific genetic testing that tests for the whole array of CF mutations. There are some tests out there that only test for the most common 20 to 30 mutations, but we know there is over 2,000 mutations that we know of for CF. So there's uh, specific panels that will get all of the mutations. So you really have to make sure you're ordering the correct
2: panel. I think that's really important um, to know and specifically kind of to put into clinical practice, um, Natalie, as you mentioned, you know, making sure um, not just for this case, but um you know, for all cases, ordering the, the appropriate testing, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what her results are. You know, I, I know um, teaching girl is that Delta F508 is the most common mutation in CF, but we know that there are over 2100 mutations, so interested to see what hers is going to come back at. Natalie, I think you brought up a great question earlier, why this patient was having recurrent pancreatitis, because I think that's really an important part of this case and wanted to get some further um, history from the patient and she tells us that she you know has had some epigastric uh, pain mostly after meals um, as well as some mild bloating and constipation and states that she's lost about 10 pounds unintentionally in the last six months so i know when we're thinking about CF um, and being the pump peeps we typically focus on long manifestations uh, specifically with recurrent infections and bronchiectasis that we see in patients. But there's also some extrapulmonary manifestations of cystic fibrosis that I think are important to review um, at this time. So definitely, we can see chronic sinusitis. We can see recurrent pancreatitis, as well as pancreatic insufficiency. We could see CF-related liver disease, CF-related diabetes, and obstructive azospermia in MELS. And one of the patients that I recently saw had minimal pulmonary symptoms and was really getting part of a workup for infertility where he was actually then um, able to be diagnosed with CF based on, on his fertility workup. So for our patient, I would be concerned that she has developed pancreatic insufficiency and would evaluate that with a stool fecal elastase.
0: It's great to have a review of systems that extends beyond the pulmonary system there. So that that's awesome questions to ask all these patients uh, and any patient that we're worried about could have cystic fibrosis, some things that we can rule in or rule out. In the meantime, I think Natalie brought up a great point is that bronchiectasis itself can be treated even if we don't have the underlying cause yet. You know, We want to get the underlying cause so we can treat that, but we have to treat bronchiectasis to prevent the patient from having Recurrent infections. So, the things that we mainly talk about in that case are airway clearance. Airway clearance is a mainstay of therapy for cystic fibrosis, but also in non cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. And there are multiple ways this can be accomplished. This can be manual percussion. There are some automatic devices that help with this. We often use bronchodilators to relieve that obstruction and also allow for more production of mucus. And then sometimes mucolytics uh, or nebulized solutions that can thin the secretions, break them up and get them to be easier to cough up. I'll say that those mucolytics are are mostly targeted towards cystic fibrosis. So, you know, for patients who have non-CF bronchiectasis, we're usually a little bit more careful or judicious with their use. And then there are some devices like an acapella device or a flutter valve that patients can learn how to use to loosen secretions. And you know some of these great pulmonary rehabs will actually take a patient and teach them how to do that. And anyone with bronchiectasis should have that to try to clear secretions, prevent them from becoming impacted and getting worsening infections. In addition, some patients who have bronchiectasis, we think about suppressive antibiotics. Uh, these can be either oral or inhaled. I'm curious, you guys have more experience with this than me. Which patients are you putting on suppressive antibiotics and what sort of triggering you to do that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I tend to um, more think about the patients who have frequent exacerbations. So if they're requiring a lot of hospitalizations or a lot of oral antibiotics, then we need, really need to be thinking about either suppressive oral uh, therapy, antibiotic therapy, or inhaled therapy. And so particularly if they're growing gram-negative, such as pseudomonas is the most common We might put them on an inhaled antibiotic one month switch it to a different one the next month and rotate those monthly or sometimes staph MRSA is the most common gram positive and there's not really great inhaled antibiotics except for vancomycin which can sometimes be difficult to tolerate so then we might rotate two different oral antibiotics in that case all right so eight weeks later now that's about how long these genetic tests take to come back by the way So that her genetic tests have resulted, and she does have one copy of F five hundred and eight del, which, as Monty said earlier, that's the most common genetic mutation in CF, and definitely disease causing. But as we know in CF, uh, we need two mutations to have the actual disease. And her second mutation is R one one seven H, and this is really an interesting mutation. It's not as common, but it's also dependent on which variant is associated with it. So if you see R one one seven H then what you should be looking for is whether it's a 5T, 7T, or 9T. So 5T is associated with CF most definitely. So if she had the R117H5T plus F508DEL, that is seals the deal with a diagnosis of CF. 7T, which actually she has, sometimes is associated with CF, but not always. And then 9T is usually not associated with CF, except for those particular individuals will have absence of the uh, vast deference bilaterally in males causing infertility. So in looking at the 70 variant, because she fits so many other clinical criteria for CF, she fits the diagnostic criteria for CF. So she has the previous history of pancreatitis. She has lung disease, so bronchiectasis, cough, coughs, spina production, mild obstruction on PFTs, uh, pancreatic insufficiency, and she also has osteopenia, and she actually grows the most common CF bacteria, staph, pseudomonas, MAI infection, aspergillus. So for me, she's she's got the diagnosis.
2: That's really great, Nat. And I think just kind of putting, you know, what we're getting from diagnostic data, um, as well as what we're getting on history, physical exam, really kind of puts everything nicely into this diagnosis of CF. You know, so we have um, now a 52-year-old patient with recently diagnosed um, CF, who's heterozygous for Delta 5, FO8. And Natalie, I want to go back to you because, you know, Dave talked um, a little earlier about what to do as far as airway clearance therapies for people with bronchiectasis, but what other CF-specific therapies are you thinking about right now to start this patient on?
1: Great. So, yeah, she should be loaded up with airway clearance, hypertonic saline, alpha-dornase, but she is diagnosed with pancreatic insufficiency, so she should be put on pancreatic enzyme replacement therapies. And that will hopefully help with her malabsorptive issues and um, hopefully get her to regain some of the weight she's lost. And in good news for her, she actually qualifies for a CFTR modulator. And I know Dr. Patrick Sosney talked about this back in um, the previous episode about CF, but um, she now qualifies for Trikafta, which is Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor. And that is a CFTR modulator that was just approved a couple years ago. and anyone who has one copy of Delta F508 are eligible, which is about 90% of our population. And I would definitely put her on this because the um, clinical outcomes of being on this modulator are just almost a miracle. So and on average in the clinical trial, an increase in FEV1 by about 13%, a decrease in needing IV antibiotics about 65%. And there's also a weight gain um, with that as well. And so I think the benefits of that are going to be great to her. And so um, I would want to, to start her on that. And then in terms of following up in clinic, so the CF Foundation guidelines are to follow up every three months. But anytime we get a new diagnosis of CF, it's certainly overwhelming. A lot of these patients and families will go on the internet and really kind of scare themselves. But um, so I usually see these people once a month for a couple months until we're kind of in a groove. We've gotten through a lot of the education about what CF is. And we kind of start a lot of these therapies slowly because it's it's very overwhelming to just starting to add all these therapies and all of a sudden patients are needing to do two hours of therapies per day. So we kind of start a lot of these things in a stepwise fashion.
2: That was really helpful, Natalie, and I think really important to mention that it can be extremely overwhelming for the patient as well as the family. So definitely taking time with education and seeing the patient frequently up front, really important for learners to know. And I think it's super important for the patient to be started on Trikafta, as you mentioned, um, one of the CFTR modulators, which I think has helped revolutionize treatment for people with CF in the last two years. And um, for those of you listening today, definitely take a listen to our CF roundtable where we talk more in depth about the advances in CF if you haven't already. I do want to take this time though, you know, we've talked about the workup of bronchiectasis. We talked about um, our patient having a new diagnosis CF and we talked about common treatments that we would start. But I do want to take a minute to review some of the other labs or things that we should be thinking about and ordering for a patient with a new diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. And some of the typical labs that we'll order and that you should be thinking of is a comprehensive metabolic panel as well as a PTINR and an APTT for coags. So as I mentioned, one of the extra pulmonary manifestations can be CF-related liver disease, so we'll screen for that with those labs. We also want to check a CBC. We want to check fat-soluble vitamins. So those are specifically A, D, E, and K. And for some patients, like um, our patient that we talked about, have pancreatic insufficiency, so they're um, unable to absorb some of the vitamins that are needed. So they'll have to be on a daily repletion with that. We also talked about pancreatic insufficiency and making sure that they have a stool fecal elastase, as we checked in our case. Some other common labs include an IgE level, as we mentioned. Not necessarily common, but those patients with underlying asthma and cystic fibrosis can develop ABPA. We want to check a hemoglobin A1c as well as an oral glucose tolerance test to evaluate the risk of cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. And the last two things include a DEXA scan or a bone scan in order to um, evaluate bone mineral density in patients with CF because they're more prone to early onset osteopenia as well as osteoporosis. And then we do know that studies have shown that people with CF are at higher risk for GI cancers. So we really talk about the importance of of colon cancer screening, and we start this at age 40.
0: That's awesome. Another episode of Poem Peeps, another case solved, and some treatments for our patient. Natalie, thanks so much again for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Could you tell us one takeaway point you want our listeners to have from the case today? All
1: right, guys, so I think my one takeaway point from today's case that I would want our listeners to know is that anytime you see bronchiectasis, it's location, location, location. So if it's primarily located in the upper lobes, you want to think about cystic fibrosis and sarcoid. Primarily in the middle lobes, meaning right middle lobe or lingula, is ABPA and non tuberculous mycobacteria. And then the rest all are predominantly found in the lower lobes. So rheumatological disorders such as Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, inflammatory bowel disease, and then alpha-1-antitrypsin, any history of radiation, aspiration, primary ciliary dyskinesia, and then immunosuppressive disorders like HIV and hypogammaglobulinemia.
0: Great. And I actually have two today because I thought that hyperinflation with uh, interstitial markings was so great. You know, thinking if you see that on x ray about sarcoidosis, cystic fibrosis, hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, or LAM. And second was about an indeterminate sweat chloride test not being uncommon and something that we could see in older patients with heterozygous mutations and make sure to get genetic testing for those patients and getting the full panel of genetic testing.
2: And I will round out our teaching points for the day, and mine is that you should consider that CF can be diagnosed later in adulthood, especially in those patients that have a milder phenotype, and you should definitely consider getting a sweat test as part of your workup for bronchiectasis if the clinical context is appropriate. We'd like to thank you for following along with our case today and appreciate you um, supporting Pulm Peeps. And just remember, if you haven't already, follow us at Pompeeps at Twitter, and you can see what's going on on our website at PulmPeeps.com. And again, Nat, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thanks, guys, for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music was original music made by Eric Rogers.